may have heard headlines in some American media about how sugary drinks are fattening the world, or the claim that America leads the world in soda-related deaths. Or maybe you've seen charts displayed by members of Congress who wanted to fund Planned Parenthood, charts that seem to show abortions are on the rise while the agency is doing less cancer screening or other preventative services. You may wonder about the accuracy of these claims or what studies were used to reach these conclusions. Welcome to Stats and Stories. It's a program where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Our focus today is becoming a science journalist and the importance of understanding the scientific data on many vital topics from sugary drinks to climate change. Before we talk with our special guest, we ask Stats and Stories reporter Austin Fast to help us understand data journalism. A century-old bit of advice from newspaper publisher Joseph Pulitzer suggests you want statistics to tell you the truth. You can find truth there if you know how to get at it. So, how can we get at the truth? Today, more than ever, journalists are turning to a set of skills known as data journalism or computer-assisted reporting. Liz Lucas is director of the database library at NICAR, the National Institute for Computer-Assisted Reporting, at the University of Missouri. She says data has become something that any good journalist simply cannot ignore. Data really allows you to say, well, how much of a problem is this? How long has this been a problem? Those are questions that really help a story that it's, they're very hard to get without data. Data allows journalists to add context and scope to better explain issues in their stories. NICAR holds boot camps three times a year, in addition to newsroom trainings, to show reporters from all stages in their careers that you don't have to be a programming genius to be a data journalist. And the most important thing that we emphasize is what we call the data state of mind. Uh, it's not a specific piece of software. It's not anything like that. It's knowing as a reporter how to use data in your reporting. And that really entails like thinking about what data might exist and thinking about how you can get it. So that data state of mind is crucial. If you don't have that, even if you run across data and you don't know how to think about how to make it work or think about how to incorporate it into your reporting, you're going to get stuck even if you're a whiz at Excel. One survivor of NICAR's boot camps is Joanna Lynn. She's a data reporter for the Center for Investigative Reporting in California's San Francisco Bay Area. Lynn says data journalism doesn't necessarily require sophisticated algorithms or calculus like you might think. Most of the time, it's just your basic elementary school arithmetic that can organize information and provide a structure to find patterns and outliers. One of Lynn's first data stories looks at schools in California that had been promised funding for infrastructure projects, but none of the cash was getting doled out. It was overwhelming. There was just a ton of information, and it was all sort of separated into different places. And I think if I hadn't had the ability to look at a spreadsheet and kind of combine this information and clean it up a little bit and sort it and filter it, I wouldn't have known how to approach it at all. By combining the dozens of entries for various schools, Lynn found which schools had the most at stake. She then used that information to guide her next steps in chasing down the story. It can help you identify your sources and zero in on the examples that are relevant for you. Organizing the information that way allowed me to really target where I was going to go spend my time and who I should focus on, rather than just staring at this list and just picking at random or picking ones that were nearby. Americans are constantly bombarded with research studies, some well-researched and others clearly biased. What's the best way for journalists not to get used by special interest groups or by the politicians? 
Both Lucas and Lynn suggest one thing. Always get the raw data. You know, you would never want to take what a source tells you at face value. And the same is true when they start including numbers or data in their conversations with you. That was Lynn's advice. For Lucas, it's all about asking tough questions. What's the data behind that number? How did you get that number, right? Make them show their work. Make them show you the data that they're using. That way you can, I mean, as best as you can, try and figure out what some of the potential problems might be with how they're reporting something. In the end, numbers, decimals, and percentages don't have to be deadly to reporters and readers, as long as data journalists are making sense of them for the rest of us. For Stats and Stories, I'm Austin Fast. Joining me on Stats and Stories for our discussion of science journalism are Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell. And our special guest today is Trevor Butterworth, the editor of Stats.org, a joint project between the American Statistical Association and Sense About Science USA, promoting statistical literacy in the media and society in general. He's also director of Sense About Science USA, and Trevor has written for publications such as Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Forbes, Harvard Business Review, and NewYorker.com. Trevor, we welcome you uh, to our show today. Thank you for having me. So I've got a question for you of how you got drawn into the whole field of science journalism. Was it something you set out to do or something that kind of happened along the way? You know, I, I give a lot of talks to scientific groups, particularly chemists, and I tell them that nobody goes into journalism to write about chemistry. Uh, and that chemistry, unlike physics, doesn't have a big hole in the ground where they're trying to recreate the beginning of the universe. And unlike biology, it doesn't have all these exciting sort of findings about that make you live, you live long, that'll make you live longer or love better. Um, so chemistry is really the, the, the sort of the poor man out. Uh, and I suppose somebody had to somebody had to wade in and and write about chemistry. So, I I'm a reluctant science uh, journalist, <laughs> and I'll say why because um, we have this notion, or we've had for many years, this notion of two cultures: the idea that you're either with the arts and humanities wing of society, or you are a scientist, a mathematician, a statistician. And um, obviously this came about through C.P. Snow's famous book of the same name. But for me, the issue, uh, I, I, in fact, I, even though I have been a science writer for Newsweek, uh, I reject the label science writer because I believe we live, all live in one culture and we all depend on one method, which is the scientific method for producing valid uh, findings. So I, I guess that's a non-answer to your question. <laughs> but I do think it, 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 I do think it gets at the heart of what I really believe in, which is that statistics and science is something that we all should be engaged in, no matter uh, what, we, what major we had in college. John Baylor, I'll go to you for the next question. Uh, well, gee, I, you're going to find no opposition here in terms of that perspective that you just shared, Trevor. <laughs> Thank, thanks a lot for that that uh, that broad view. So, what what led you to to where you are and and what you did? Tell us a little bit about your background. Right. Well, um, uh, it's uh, I, I'm I have one of those classic degrees that's supposed to be super useless, which is a degree in art history. Um, I uh, I did a classic wandering around the arts and humanities and ended up in after several tries at, journalism, at graduate school, I ended up in journalism school. 
And, uh, and weirdly enough, um, it was in journalism school that I began to see how journalism reflected so many of my interests uh, in graduate school, principally what counts as valid knowledge. And um, uh, this to me, you know, obviously there are all sorts of academic debates uh, in the humanities as to what valid knowledge was. And you had really uh, interesting perspectives in um, philosophy, for instance. And I guess had I been good at math, I probably would have become a philosopher. Um, uh, but I saw, you know, that one didn't need to be an academic to begin asking really interesting questions that were of deep relevance to the public. I suppose really what I felt in graduate school was that there were lots of disputes that really weren't reaching out to the concerns that people had. And yet, in the public realm, there were all sorts of claims to uh, knowledge and claims to evidence where the evidence often wasn't there. And that, to me, was what was interesting about journalism. It was, it actually, it was, a it was a 19th century idea of journalism. Journalism was conceived in many ways as a science, as a social science, uh, one in which the, it would shed, journalists would shed new light on a dramatically changing economy and political environment by doing, uh, you know, sort of by thinking about things in a really concrete and analytical way. And of course, the famous expression of that comes from none other than Joseph Pulitzer in his 1904 uh, article, The College of Journalism, in which he extols the romance of statistics, in which he talks about journalists find, you know, being able to find truth in statistics, but that it wasn't necessarily easy. And of course, the interesting thing, you know, and I guess my perspective as a historian, you know, I spent some grad time in grad school in history was that uh, Pulitzer would have no idea about how complex statistics were about to become in the next 20 years. <laughs> Richard Campbell, go to you for the next question. Hi, Trevor. Welcome. Um, you hit on something there about the origins of journalism starting more as a social science but the truth is that the real tool that journalists have are narratives, are stories. Mm -hmm. And so I think the challenge for us with our students uh, often is how do, you, how do you tell stories that are about complicated numbers? And what are the challenges there? Well, uh, a great question. Um, I'm reminded of a quote uh, from Best Newspaper Journalism in 1982, you know, one of those compendiums that come out and, or at least did come out, maybe they're historical artifacts now, but they used to come out with, you know, every year around uh, the holiday season. And uh, one of the comments by one of the uh, journalists was that I never let, uh, uh, I never let two paragraphs with numbers, you know, kind of bump into each other because I think <laughs> numbers are deadly. Oh. Well, uh, and that, I think, was very much a conventional view. Uh, and there was some truth to that. At some point, numbers aren't reducible to words. Mm -hmm. Numbers are numbers. And it's really difficult to tell a story when you have this, uh, essentially, this chasm between uh, a conventional storytelling and, and, and even just the, the, the ability to describe uh, a numerical concept in words. So, yeah, that, that's a real problem. But I also look, you know, Tom Rosenstiel, uh, director of uh, the American Press Institute, and before that, a giant in the field of sort of journalism criticism uh, with what he did at the Pew Center for the People in the Press. And he said something quite recently, which I thought was, you know, really actually captured the moment we're in right now. And he said, you know, we're entering a new age of empiricism. 
with big data, with data analytics. We have become a quantitative, quantitative, quantified society in ways that are, you know, are not only resulting in the multiplication of knowledge, but, but, but are really more complex than ever before. And the question is, is it true? And that's the question of journalism. Are all these numbers true? Um, and I think one of the problems we are in right now is that certain narratives of certain data fit certain narratives really easily. Usually, you know, heroes and villains. You know, there's something's something's going to uh, something's going to kill you. Something's going to save your life. Very very simple kind of old stories. Actually, a kind of updated yellow journalism you know we're holding power accountable and be, you know they, they want to make us drink this horrible drink and it's ki killing us and da, da 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 but actually when you start thinking about things or uh, statistically which uh, when i say that i mean when i go and talk to a statistician and say help me out here i don't know what i'm <laughs> i don't know what i'm reading uh <laughs> um you actually find that the narrative the co combination of having that quantitative view of the world Plus all the old shoe leather reporting, plus all that sitting and power, you know reading through the history books, you can find really really interesting stories um, that that uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't have seen if you just gone with the conventional narrative. So get at that a little bit more because I think you're right. I think that a lot of journalists are gonna are gonna be attracted to the kind of narrative that's gonna allow them to have a villain and have you know, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. So what are some of those stories they're missing by not looking more closely that are also interesting and compelling stories? Well, um, I mean, you have right now the National Institutes of Health, uh, you know, warning of a reproducibility crisis in science, at least in biomedicine. Uh, uh, and that's a tremendously interesting story in itself. How have we funded so much research that can't be reproduced? Well, there may be some good reasons for that. Um, uh, you know, it's not all, often easy to reproduce a study. It doesn't mean something's gone wrong. But when you have papers being published with, say, say like Amgen in Nature, where only they were only able to reproduce six of something like 51 landmark cancer studies, you're going to, what's going on? What is going on there? Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, the, the, the key thing is, is when you ask that question, what are the tools you need as a journalist to actually answer that question? And I think the challenge is making the news media realize this isn't something you can do on your own. You actually need a statistician to come along, or several, and hold your hand and work on it together. I'm Bob Long. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and we are exploring the topic of becoming a science journalist. Joining me are Statistics Department Chair John Baylor here at Miami University, Media Journalism Film Chair Richard Campbell, and special guest Trevor Butterworth, the Director of Sense About Science and the editor of Stats.org, which is a joint project between the American Statistical Association and Sense About Science USA. Trevor, one thing I noticed um, th that I think we're, we're kind of getting at there, you've got the statistical part that 
a lot of times people like yourself want to really share with with people mm. out there because you know it's important. On the other side of the coin, you've got the editors who a lot of times have their own idea. Can you give us an example of sometimes the tension that exists there between what they want as a headline or a story and what you think the story so, should be? So uh, at a magazine that – well, yes, when I was at news, writing for Newsweek, uh, I pitched what I thought was a really interesting story about sleep research. And actually there'd been – there was there was a great book had come out by uh, – a German sleep researcher, he coined the term social jet lag. Uh, and there was an amazing, really interesting study by a guy called Orfeo Buxton at Harvard, which, you know, uh, simulated shift work in a group of people and showed that they would develop biomarkers that are commonly described as pre-diabetes, which is itself somewhat controversial, but but also very interesting because half of them, well, uh, not half, but a significant amount of the American workforce is, is on shift work of some t- some kind. So if that's correlated with weight gain, then maybe this is a, you know, maybe we've got a really big problem here. So I'd arrange the interview, you know, guy, I'm talking to the guy in Munich, I'm talking to this other guy, I'm all ready, set to go. And you've got a fairly narrow, had a fairly narrow window of time to do this. And then I get a call from my editor uh, or an email, uh, and it went, uh, can you drop the the sleep story and write about dinosaur farts instead? (laughs) 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 And and, 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 uh, if I can labor the the story a little bit... uh, uh, I, I was incredulous. Uh, not only, uh, and particularly because I was one of these people that had no interest in dinosaurs. I knew nothing about paleontology, so I protested. I've got all these interviews lined up. I got blah 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 blah. And he said, "Okay, well, you can do that next week, but you've got to write about dinosaur fights." And the reason was that dinosaur, fi- a major study, according to other news media had uh, uh, claimed that dinosaur farting may have caused global warming in the Mesozoic period. (laughs) So I'm going like, where do you begin? Where do you begin with that? So I Google paleontologist. And then the first one, first email I get, I email him and say, this is kind of strange, but blah, blah. I get an email back quite quickly. He goes, we're all talking about this study. It's kind of crazy. It's not really, you know... uh, and and so we have this conversation uh, on email and, you know, and he kind of points out, well, you know what else occurred during the Mesozoic period? Well, the, the Atlantic Ocean formed and that might just have had a little bit, you know, more of an effect on climate than, than dinosaur farts. So anyway, I got the study. It wasn't a major study. It was one of those short little notes uh, that uh, had been written uh, in, a, in a journal, 700 words. And and then I, so I'm next day I'm on the phone to the researcher and I've been prepped I've been prepped I know how to ask the awkward questions, and immediately the guy the the researcher says well you know this is just a back of the napkin calculation uh, you know I I I, and I I I did what I tell my students never to do which is to extrapolate, and basically he extrapolated from an elephant to an apatosaurus. <laughs> Which, 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 just in case you're interested, that's 200 liters of methane a day. So it clearly would not have been fun to stand downwind of an apatosaurus, which is, I believe is now, is now called a brontosaurus again. But, um, but the point was that um, the story that I ended up doing was different to a lot of the other stories because I'd spoken to a scientist who'd clued me in as to the weaknesses of this study. And what I have found and what I've seen is that often when you have take the time to read a scientific study to find out its limitations and you cannot, you can, you know, and that reading those limitations sections, the most important thing of, in any paper. 
And then when you have an honest conversation with a scientist, they will be much more open about the limitations and uncertainties of their research if, if you know, there are, you know, there's a good reason for that. Whereas... The other is another tendency, which is if you keep prodding the scientists to say, well, what does this really mean? Well, what does what give me the take? They will be forced to be more certain than they would be if they were simply talking to other scientists. And I think that's a real danger that happened. This desire for narrative simplicity is create is just ruining science. John Baylor, go to you for the next question. One aspect of what you just described, it makes me think that, that when people look at scientific papers, that, that they're tempted to just look at the abstract introduction and discussion. That, that in essence, the, the nuance is found in the heart of this and the mm-hmm. methods and in some of the results and the characterization of that. And one concern that I, often, that I often have when I think about how people are looking at evidence and processing evidence is that they're, they're going to have this idea. Here's my idea for the story or here's my argument that I wish to make. And once I find studies that are consistent with it, full stop. So how do, how do you kind of for, help people, you know, avoid that temptation? Well, um, it's a, that's a great question. And it is a huge temptation to cherry pick your, the, the, the studies to fit your narrative. Journalists are in a lot of pressure to turn out stories that people will read. Um, I think you have to create a culture in which that's called lying. I mean, it is. That's fraud. It's fraud. It's a kind of, maybe not full-blown academic fraud, but it's fraudiness. You know, we had this, Stephen Colbert had this concept of truthiness. We need fraudiness. And that needs to be, it's like, no, sorry, you don't run this kind of thing. I I have a great example. Again, the the great example is to, I gave this, so there was a study came out a few years ago. It was in pediatrics. And it was, again, it was thousands of studies on BPA. But this study claimed that gestational exposure to BPA in mothers led to bad behavior in girls aged three. So gets lots of airplay. The head of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences comes out and tells reporters, this is a really good study. It's really well done. The sample size is good, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I know from my contacts at the EPA and FDA that they did not believe that to be the case. So I just handed the study over to a statistician. I said, well, what do you make of this? What do you make of the design? Um, actually, that, uh, uh, I'm jumping ahead. I said, what do you make of the statistics? And he comes back and he said, you know what? All the fancy statistics in the world can't solve uh, a study that's been badly designed. And he said, this study didn't design, wasn't designed to answer the question, which is kind of interesting. You know, why did nobody pick that up? But when he looked through the data, he saw something that you would completely miss if you were just looking at the abstract or if you were just not even looking at the abstract, if you were reading the press release, as, as uh, most journalists would have been reading the press release. And that was that the gestational exposure to BPA uh, improved behavior in boys. But that wasn't mentioned anywhere. So how could you, uh, of course, he said this is meaningless. It still didn't, wasn't designed to find, to answer this question. But it was interesting that nobody mentioned this finding that was completely at odds with the thrust of the, that's what you get when you give somebody who knows how to read data access to the data. You're listening to our discussion of Becoming a Science Journalist. I'm Bob Long, along with our regular panelists, Miami University Media Journalism Film Chair Richard Campbell, Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, and special guest 
Trevor Butterworth. John, go back to you, and then we'll go to Richard uh, to as we wrap up our discussion here. Yeah, th- thanks, Richard, for the. the <laughs> uh, just had a, a quick follow up, and, and sure. you know, one one aspect of this that seems really critically important is the issue of variables. What's measured and how measured, and I, I think that a lot of times people get hung up in in some of the methods that are applied without thinking about questions of design, as you had mm-hmm. recently mentioned, but also just the nature of how things are measured and if they make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, how do, how do you encourage that kind of sensitivity and, as part of the critical reading of such evidence? Well, um, that's, again, gr- well, one of the things that we're doing at STATS uh, with the STATS project is that we've got a volunteer team of statisticians from around the country who are ready to help journalists read through the data. Whatever data they have, uh, when they have a problem or there's something they don't understand, email us and we'll talk you through it. I mean, when I say we, they will talk you through it. I'm not going to talk you through it. Um, and um, uh, and that's been really – the journalists that have used us have found this service invaluable because it gives them insight. You know, simply talking through the numbers is, is, is a great way to get a journalist's brain thinking. Um, and, um, and we've done this, you know, on an ad hoc basis now with the American Statistical Association, we've really kind of pumped this up and we really think this could be a game changer. Um, but ultimately what we want to see, what we want to see is the statistician being in the newsroom. We want to see the future of news being statistical, uh, at least in parts of those, those news stories that need that kind of analysis. Um, so, um, but it is a challenge, um, and uh, but I do think we are seeing in this new age of empiricism, we're seeing new news organizations being created with new journalists. You know, some terrific Julia Belers has been doing terrific work at Vox. Uh, and they're, they're thinking about science and data in a new way. Well, not, not so much a new way from your perspective as a statistician, but from a new, a new perspective as a journalist. They're seeing the value in doing this. They want, you know, the, Nate Silver's famous line about, you know, sort of punditry being useless because, for, you know, pundits' forecasts were just, you know, the, like the Philip Tetlock research on the chimpanzee <laughs> throwing darts at a board. Um, uh, and um, so, so I think that represents a shift a cultural shift, a cultural shift born of, uh, I think, a more technologically empowered generation who are more comfortable with technology and the tools, simply maybe the the data visualization tools, all of these things. There's a shift in culture um, and that's come about with digital media that may be helping bring about this greater awareness. So I don't think it's, you know, it's a huge problem, uh, but I do think there's a realization that as we've gotten a lot of these stories wrong, let's stop getting them wrong. Richard Campbell, go back to you. We started out, uh, we learned that you were trained first in art history, a very different uh, field. And we have an obligation here, I think, to train our journalism students as best we can. And one of the things we do is we ask them to take a second major. Mm. So they all double major. But one of the what would if you were in my position, what what would you be asking us to be teaching students in this new technologically advanced world? Because I think you're exactly right. As there's a window that's open here to change the way we do things. Um, uh, it, I mean, I think it goes without saying. Um, you need, I, 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 you know, I think the most valuable thing that any journalist 
could be taught today is quantitative reasoning around statistics. Uh, I mean, really, it's so vital to so many sectors of society. But I will, so I will kind of shift gears a little bit, though, and say and give a nod to art history or, or to art, because um, when I from the NewYorker.com story I did, I went to Covance, a big laboratory in uh, just outside of Indianapolis that does, I think, a majority of the world's uh, uh, analytical work on blood samples. And I talked to their chief data officer, and he was telling me of the kinds of people he needs to do the data analytics on on all of this this story to build, you know, an an a sort of a, a Google of blood. I think it was the uh, <laughs> the phrase I came up with, which which uh, he obviously liked. And he said that you know they had to be top flight, you know, sort of computer science statisticians, you know, math, really all the hard academic disciplines. But he said they had to also have a sense of art. You know, they had to have a sense of design. They had to understand how to design uh, um, beautifully. Uh, you know, he actually used those words. He, he, they had the, their code, coding had to be beautiful. And I thought that was also very, very interesting. So the aesthetics and the analytics, you've got to combine both of those. John Baylor, got time for one more question. We'll go to you. Wow, like it. I mean, the aesthetics and analytics. <laughs> yeah. And I, we, we had a guest a, a, a number of episodes ago that talked about um, numbers as narrative plot elements, <laughs> which, which, I, which we also liked very much as an, as an mm. image in a sense of, of this. Now, you, you had mentioned the idea of, uh, earlier about a, a quantitative, quantified society. And, and, you know, I wonder how much that, that pushes down in terms of, the, you know, expectation for community. You know, are, are people ready for the stories that have this kind of an increased level of quantification and quantitation of information? That's, that's uh, again, um, if, if I'm supplying answers you want to hear, you're supplying really difficult questions. Um, <laughs> the, uh, that's a really good one. Um, I think... What we're looking again, um, there's a wider issue of science communication here, and how people understand science as something beneficial. How people, uh, in fact, Umberto Eco gives a great analogy uh, when he looks at it in his essay "Science, Technology, and Magic." He says people largely understand science through technology, which is a series of instantaneous effects, which, in other words, is the same as magical thinking because that's what magic is, instantaneous effects. Um, the, uh, and that, obviously, magic can be good, magic can be bad. Um, one of the areas in, in which uh, good magic, uh, or at least the hope for, desire for good magic, is, of course, through all of personalized medicine and precision medicine and all the data initiatives that are going on to, 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 to really sort of open up the inner cosmos of the human body. If that's communicated well, I think people will understand why their data uh, is so important to humanity, to the common benefit of all. And that's one of the reasons why, as an aside, uh, Sense About Science is running the All Trials campaign in the U.S., which is all trials registered, all results reported. We're all about the importance of data, uh, good data and bad data. Uh, doesn't matter. We need to know all the data in order to figure out answers to our problems. In medicine, the, fu the quantified future uh, is, uh, who would, well, difficult to forecast how imminent, but everybody's trying to get there. Uh, and I think there's huge benefits there. 
Um, I think people will, but like any movement, people will react against um, things that seem alienating. Uh, I mean, we've had great reaction against the 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 Enlightenment dream, which was, you know, the Enlightenment dream was science for the benefit of mankind. We had a reaction against that in the 20th century, which was that science is something alienating, impersonalizing, instrumental reason, uh, uh, working against people's uh, sort of um, authentic experience. So we have to be careful as well to tell you know, not to go so far into the glories of data that people think we're creating a matrix. <laughs> Trevor Butterworth, we want to thank you very much for joining us on Stats and Stories to share your insights on the importance of science journalism today. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, you can send your emails to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we'll look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.